0: Would you remain standing as we read from God's Word? This morning we will be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, ought you not Rather, to mourn, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judge on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Thank you. You may be seated.
1: Well, thanks, Mike. There's a kind of a cheery text for you this morning. A guy getting handed over to the devil, a guy sleeping with his stepmom. Gross. What are we talking about this morning? Well, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and we are going to be talking about the topic of church discipline. So uh, Jeff Ashley actually started us talking about this topic last week when he talked about the process of discipline. That if somebody's in sin, you go to them one-on-one. They don't listen to that. You take some more with you. They don't listen to that. You get the congregation involved. They don't listen to the congregation. You treat them as those outside of the covenant. And so today, we're going to be talking about discipline, but we're primarily going to be talking about that last step that third step. So when I say church discipline today, I'm typically meaning that last step where the person has to be removed from fellowship, what's traditionally been called excommunication, excommunication. Now, why are we talking about this topic two weekends in a row? It's not because someone's in trouble, all right? So everybody take a big breath. I know it's stormy outside. It's kind of good weather for a church discipline sermon, but everybody take a big breath. Nobody's in trouble. Uh, We're not mad. We're just trying to be proactive because the Bible commands us multiple times to do church discipline in several different texts. We'll look at one today. We looked at one last week. There are even others. And this is a topic where even if you've been in church your whole life, you might have never seen this done. Or you might have seen it done but not done well. Or you might have seen it done and done well but not done often. It is something that is very countercultural. Now, not only is it biblical, in the history of Christianity, uh, it's something that's always been done. I'll give you an example even just in Southern Baptist life, since we are a Southern Baptist church. In the 1800s in Southern states, a lot of Baptist churches would excommunicate up to 2% of their membership per year. Can you imagine having a church of 1,000 people and you kick out 20 people per year? Before the time of the Civil War in Georgia alone, there were 40,000 Southern Baptists who had been excommunicated. So this is something that not only is biblical, this is historical. Catholics have done this, Protestants have done this, Evangelicals have done this, Baptists have done this, and so what we wanna do is we wanna take a topic that's really kind of scary and try to, try to parse it out and figure out what the, the Bible actually says on this topic. Now, before I give you a little, uh, little illustration, I also wanna mention one more thing. If you're someone in here who struggles with sin, so you do love Christ, you do want to follow Christ, and sometimes you fail and sometimes you fall, we are here to fight alongside you. The kind of thing we're talking about today is for someone who's in unrepentant sin, So don't take some struggle you've had this week and now think, great, now I'm gonna get kicked out of a church or something like that. Unrepentance is the issue that we're dealing with today. Not just I'm a Christian and I struggle. If you're a Christian and you struggle with sin, you know what that's called? Being a Christian, all right? So that's all of us. So with that in mind, I wanna tell you a little story. There was a time in my life where I was in college and three bad things, pretty bad things, happened to me in a row within a span of a few weeks. So the first was my apartment got broken into. So I came home from work, And then my door, someone had taken a crowbar and pried open my door and went in and like stole all of our electronics. So they stole my laptop, they stole our DVD player. By the way, I know a DVD player today costs like 13 cents, but back then it was worth a little bit more. And so they stole all of our electronics and it was just a terrible experience. If you've ever been robbed or someone has burglarized your home or something, it's a very violating kind of experience. And so uh, two weeks went by and then it happened a second time. I got home, both times the doors were locked, they broke through with a pry bar, crowbar. they pried open the door and they got uh, all of our stuff. So we had just replaced our stuff and then they stole it again, okay? And then a few weeks after that, I lost a snake in my apartment. Now let me tell you how we got there. I had a boss that had three sons, okay? And instead of having normal non-demonic pets like a dog, he had two pet pythons, okay? He had two pet pythons. Those are the ones that squeeze things to kill them. Okay. So he has two pet pythons. Each python cost $1,500. So he's invested $3,000 into this, these evil pets. And he and his family were going out of town. And he said, Zach, my family and I are going out of town. I need you to watch these snakes for me. Would you mind doing that? And I'm like, yes, I would mind. They're snakes. They're going to try to tempt me or try to get me to eat forbidden fruit or something. I don't want to deal with these snakes. And so he's like, well, you've got to because I'm your boss. And I was like, okay. So I come home with this glass cage of snakes to my apartment. And I set it down on the table. I try to stay away from them. I don't like snakes, by the way, all right? I don't know how many people in here do, but I don't. And so uh, I go to bed, I wake up the next morning, and I'm eating a bowl of cereal, and I walk over to look at the snakes, and I see that there's only one in the cage. So I'm like, hmm, did one eat the other one? Are they just curled up together? Sometimes snakes do that. And then I grab the top of the cage and realize I did not latch it properly. And all of a sudden it hits me, <gasps> there's a snake in my apartment, all right? And not only could this thing kill me, it's, it's pretty small, it probably wouldn't have killed me. Not only is it terrifying, but if I lose it or it dies or it gets out, I'm out $1,500. So this is a lose-lose situation. So I call a bunch of friends of mine and I say, hey, you guys want to come help me find a snake in my apartment? And they're like, no, it's hard enough to get people to help you move, much less to find a dangerous animal. But eventually... I got my dad. I got some friends over. We had eight people in a two-bedroom apartment looking everywhere and could not find this thing, all right? We're looking in jacket pockets, and the tanks of the toilet, in lights, places it just couldn't be, and we cannot find it anywhere. We've got the refrigerator on the ground. We're looking at the back of the refrigerator. We cannot find this snake anywhere. And what's funny is when people first get there to look at the snake, they're very cautious. I'm like, hey, check under the couch, and they're like... Oh, it's good, it's not under there. I'm like, no, no, you got to stick your hand in there. You you need that bite risk. So stick your hand in there, see if you can find it. So we're looking everywhere. Cannot find this snake. The day goes on, can't find the snake, and then it comes time to go to bed. And if you've ever had trouble falling asleep, you'll especially have trouble when you know that with a few feet from you somewhere is a snake. So I know that I'm going to wake up with this thing wrapped around my neck, or it's going to bite my ankle when I try to go to the bathroom, and so I didn't sleep for a while. So I woke up the next morning, looked for the snake, couldn't find it again. Night two comes along. Have to fall back asleep, and every little sound you hear is just, (laughs) you know, get behind me, Satan. You're trying to figure out what's going on, where that snake is. And then finally, on the third day, I figured, man, my boss is going to come back. I'm going to have to pay him 1,500 bucks. I'm going to look for it one more time. So I went, I looked, and I found the snake finally underneath a dresser where we had already looked twice, which means it had been crawling around. Now, I told this story to a buddy of mine, and a professor heard it. And he came up to me, he was a believer, and he said, Zach, are you walking in some type of unrepentant sin? And I thought about it, and I was. I was a believer in college, but I was doing something the Bible said not to do, and I was not repentant. And uh, I went home and I repented, and I have not left, lost a dangerous animal in my apartment or home ever since then. That was God's love. It was an act of discipline. I've got a pretty thick skull, and so what God is doing is using some of these extreme circumstances to wake me up, to get me to consider my sin, whereas previously, I didn't consider it. Until that professor said that, I didn't really think about it. And so we're gonna talk about God's love in discipline. We're gonna talk about God's love in discipline. We have a tendency to see, we live in a culture which is actually unique from any other culture that has has ever existed before now, because we are a culture that sees rebuke, and correction and truth as things that are bad instead of things that are loving. That's a very 21st century, Western, American, I have a lot of money centric. You don't, they don't believe that if you go to sub saharan Africa. For most of world history, if somebody was about to walk off a cliff and you went up to them and said, you should not walk off that cliff, that would be seen as an act of love. But we live in a culture that hates the idea of correcting or rebuking or disciplining somebody. It's seen as not loving. For all of world history, it's been seen that if you give somebody a little pain now, to keep them from a lot of pain later, that that is an act of love, but that's just not where we are. We're in an age where uh, to correct somebody or to tell them to repent or to tell them to turn is seen as like the ultimate vice. And so what I wanna do is this, if you take away nothing from this lesson, here's what I want you to take away. Churches that do discipline love their people, and churches that don't do discipline hate their people. I don't mean hate them in their heart, I mean the Bible would say they hate them in their action. We have to reorient our mind to realize discipline is good and gracious and loving. Let me give you just a few texts. Uh, Jeff mentioned a few of these last week. Let me just give you a few texts where it talks about discipline and look at words like love, accepts, children, these kind of things. I'll give you an example from being a parent. I'll give you an example from what God does with Christians and I'll give you an example of what Jesus says to his church. I think we've got a few of these texts that we're gonna throw up on the screen. The first one is Proverbs twenty-three, thirteen through 14. It says this, do not withhold discipline from a child. And if you say, well, Zach, that's just metaphorical discipline. It's not where it causes them pain. Allow me to continue reading the verse. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Isn't that a great verse? Don't let those big crocodile tears fool you. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from sheol, from the grave, from death. So what the Bible's going to say is this is loving. Now, we're not talking about abuse. Abuse is where you hurt a kid for their bad or you hurt them too much. This is talking about hurting them a little for their good. And the Bible says, that's what you do if you love your kid. Elsewhere, the Proverbs say, he who spares the rod hates his son. God does this with us. Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Literally, in Greek, that's the word for scourging. God whips, he scourges those that he accepts as sons. Revelation three nineteen. Jesus says this as he's critiquing the churches. He says this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And then one more. This is a a verse we don't have time to get to today, but it's in this same passage. It says, uh, it's 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Did you know the Bible tells us to judge people? There's this misconception that because Jesus says not to hypocritically judge, not to take the speck out of somebody's eye when you have a plank in your own, therefore we shouldn't tell people that sin is sin and we shouldn't correct people, especially in the church. If somebody says to you, don't judge me, what they're saying is I'm not a Christian because we're commanded to judge those within the church,
0: right?
1: Now, with all that in mind, everybody take a big breath. Oh, scary. It's, it's dark outside. We're talking church discipline. This should be fun. Let's get into verse one. Let's get into verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. For a man has his father's wife. Now, a few things here. The, where it says sexual immorality, here, the Greek word is the word pornea. Pornēia. What does that sound like? It's where we get our term for pornography. It's a graphe, a picture of sexual immorality. Porneia in the New Testament is kind of seen as this umbrella term. It's kind of this catch-all term for anything sexual outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage, okay? Anything sexual outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage, or as we as Christians would just call it marriage, anything outside of that in the New Testament is seen as porneia. So within a monogamous heterosexual marriage, you actually have a lot of freedom. It's meant to be exciting and adventurous and passionate. But outside of that, it's porneia. It's sexual immorality. Sexuality in the New Testament, it's kind of like this. Within the fireplace, imagine fire in a fireplace. Your marriage is kind of like that fireplace. Within the fireplace, that fire produces heat and warmth and light and beauty. But when it gets out of that fireplace, it burns the house down and kills everybody, all right? So porneia is a term that's used for things like adultery in Greek literature. It's used for things like homosexuality in Greek literature. It's used for things like premarital sex in Greek literature, et cetera. And so here he says there's an act that we have to deal with in the church. There's a man here in sexual immorality. What kind of sexual immorality is it? It says, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. I love that. He's saying when even lost people are like, that's nasty. That's a red flag, all right? That's what he's saying. And what is the act that's going on in the church? Look at the last part of that. For a man has his father's wife, all right? A man has his father's wife. Now, that's probably not his mother, If it was his birth mother, it would probably just say mother. When it says it's his father's wife, it's probably his stepmother. That's probably meant to recall a passage in Leviticus. In Leviticus, this list of the kind of people you should not be with sexually is listed on there, and it mentions not only one's mother, but one's father's wife. I want to show it to you because it's the background for this text. Leviticus 18.8, I think we've got it on the screen. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. What does that mean? Well, Within a marriage, when a husband and wife come together, they are one flesh, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're one unit, all right? There's not two fleshes, they're one flesh. So as this man is sleeping with his stepmother, not only is he dishonoring his stepmother, he's dishonoring his father, because his father and his stepmother are one flesh, all right? If you say, man, that's weird and gross, yes, that's the point. It's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be obviously that this man is in sin. So even from a Jew, whether you come from a Jewish background in this text or you come from a pagan background, they would see that this is sin. So I want you to see a few things about church discipline from this text before we go on to verse two. The first thing is this, you only do church discipline when something is clearly sin. Last week, Jeff told a story of how somebody tried to do church discipline on him because he uh, just would leave the shower curtain open when he got out of the shower. His roommate sat down and was all serious and was like, listen, we've got to deal with this. You don't do that. You don't do discipline just because you don't like somebody or just because they're a handful or just because they disagree with opinions of elders or something like this. You only do church discipline when something is clearly sin. Paul is trying to say, this man is in sin. The second thing I want you to see is this. You only do this final stage of church discipline, excommunication, when the sin is unrepentant, when it's unrepentant. In the text, when it says that a man has his father's wife, in Greek, that verb, echain, to have, it's, it's continual in Greek. This is not a one-time deal. This is not a man who sins and is weeping and is repentant and wants to love and follow Jesus. This is a man who is continually doing this. This is a man who's in unrepentance. Really, the thing that gets someone kicked out of a church is not any, in, any individual particular sin. It's unrepentance. It's unrepentance. It's a heart that says, I love my sin more than Jesus. I'll give you a little story. Uh, I was, uh, there was a guy one time uh, at a church where I was at, and uh, he was filing for divorce against his wife. He didn't have biblical grounds. There wasn't infidelity or any of that kind of stuff. He was filing divorce against his wife. And so I sat down with them as a couple and just said, listen, would you take divorce off the table? We're going to get you some counseling. We're going to get you in a community group. We're going to help you. We're going to love you. We're going to walk through this process with you because Jesus can save your marriage. Would you at least take divorce off the table? And he said, sure, I'll take it off the table. I was like, great, great find out a few weeks later not only has he continued pursuing the divorce that he has a mistress and he took all his family's money and his kids didn't have food and his wife couldn't buy new tires and her tires were balding that's how I found out she called me and she's like does the church have any money to help me I don't have any tires and my kids don't have any food and so I called this guy and I set up a meeting over lunch which by the way I should have just met him in my office it made it really awkward to try to rebuke him over lunch so we sat down at lunch and I said hey man Tell me what's going on. You said you'd take divorce off the table. We want to help you. And he looked me right in the eye, and he said, I know this is sinful. I know it's not what the Bible teaches. I know it goes against the teaching of the church, but I don't care. I'm not going to stay in my marriage. Now, that makes lunch really awkward. What do you do at that point? All right, man, you want some of my fries? Okay. I mean, there was nothing else to talk about. And so I looked him right in the eye and I said, do you understand what it means if we do church discipline? We're not just being mean as a church. We're not just kicking you out of the church. We're saying there's a problem between you and God. And he said, no, well, Jesus will forgive me. And so I looked him right in his eye and I said, no, he won't. Jesus only forgives Christians. He only forgives those who are repentant. Now, don't freak out yet. Let me explain my answer, okay? He said, what do you mean he won't forgive me? You've got other people in your church who've been divorced and committed adultery. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's gonna forgive them. He's just not going to forgive you. They're repentant. They're Christians. They didn't just sit down over lunch and look me in the eye and say, I don't care what the Bible says. I love my sin more than Jesus, and I won't repent. Now, let me put that story on pause in case you're freaking out. If you've gone through a divorce or adultery, there's mercy in Christ. If you know Christ, you're forgiven. What I'm trying to do with this guy is I'm trying to shake him up and let him know, I don't think you're a Christian. I don't think you're regenerate. Yes, Jesus can forgive any sin, but he does so for those that know him, and I don't think that you know him. That's what I was trying to do. And he was removed from the church. It's unrepentant, hard-hearted, continual sin, and so he was removed, so he was removed, okay? Now, verse two, look at verse two. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Everybody look at me, this is important. First Corinthians five is not primarily written to rebuke a guy in sin. It's primarily written to rebuke a church that fails to deal deal with it. First Corinthians five is not primarily written to rebuke a guy in sin, although it does that. It's primarily written to rebuke a church that doesn't deal with it. So what the church in Corinth is doing is they're saying, look how spiritual we are. Look how enlightened we are. We know that someone can be a Christian and they can still sleep around. It doesn't really matter. And Paul says, you are out of your mind. By the way, can that ever happen today? Where a church thinks that it's really spiritual and really progressive and really tolerant because it doesn't judge people and doesn't call people to repentance and, and seems to exp- display the love of Jesus despite the way that that's not how Jesus loved people. Can that ever happen in a church today? It happened 2,000 years ago? It happens today. It's the same thing. That churches that accept sin and tolerate not opinion but sin see themselves as godly and enlightened and just wanting to love people like Jesus and what Paul says is you better get on your face and repent. Repent. You're arrogant and you're boasting in this man's sin where you should be weeping and begging Jesus not to come shut down your church. Or as Revelation would say, remove your lampstand. Remove your lampstand. Look at the second part of verse two. And you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Look at verse two B, if you will. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Church discipline is a removal of somebody from Christian fellowship, okay? Okay. It's not just a removal from communion, although they can't take communion if they're excommunicated. It's not just a removal of membership, although they can't be a member if they're excommunicated. It is a full removal of Christian fellowship from that person. We are told that multiple times in the Bible. We're told to remove him from among us. We're told to hand him over to Satan. We're told not to associate with such a one. We're told not to eat with such a one. We're told twice, both in uh, Thessalonians and in Titus, to have nothing to do with them. So it's not where they get all the other blessings of the church, minus one. It's that they are what traditionally in church history has been called under the ban, that we remove Christian fellowship from them because we no longer can wave the Jesus flag over them because their sin seems to be something they love more than Jesus. Continual, hard-hearted, unrepentant sin. And in this text, it's a full removal of fellowship. Look in verse three. Verse three. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Oh man, this is a good kind of pre-Easter sermon, just to get you really, really happy, get you feeling good about yourself. What is going on in this text? I want you to see a few things about church discipline. I want you to see that it is a church-wide thing. It's a church-wide thing. What some churches do is the leadership of the church kicks somebody out, and then they just tell people about it later. In this text, look in verse four, it's when you're t- gathered. It's when the congregation is together. It's when you're assembled. Matthew 18 says the same thing, that if they don't listen when you bring two or three with you, tell it to the congregation, the assembly, the ecclesia. Church discipline is something a whole church has to do. Because if just leaders kick somebody out, guess what? Everyone else will still fellowship with them. So what you have to do is the congregation as a whole has to say, we love you enough to call you to account. We love you enough to make you choose between Jesus and your sin. So I want you to see that it is a church-wide thing. It's a congregation-wide thing. Also, look at verse four again. I wanna read it. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Here's what it means. When the church makes an official decision like this, it speaks with the very authority of Jesus himself. That's strong. Last week, Jeff mentioned this. He said, what does it mean to say what you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. What does that mean? And here's what it means. The church is to back up the decisions of God. The church is to enact physically what's already true of somebody spiritually, that that earth is to follow the decision of heaven. Let me give you a few examples. When somebody repents and believes in Jesus, they're washed clean of their sins, they're forgiven, they're born again, they have new life in Christ, amen? Amen, that's between them and God. In what way does the church affirm that? In what way does the church put our stamp of approval on that? In what way does the church back that up physically? Through baptism. In baptism, we are saying, we are showing what we believe to be true of the person spiritually, physically down here. Make sense? When somebody repents and trusts in Christ, they now have fellowship with Christ, and they're adopted into a new spiritual family. They have fellowship with other Christians. Because of the broken body and shed blood of Christ, they now have access to God, and they have a new spiritual family. That's true of them when they repent and believe in Jesus. In what way does the church back up that decision of heaven or enact that decision down here on earth? What way? You can yell it, you can say it. What rite or ritual do we do that shows that someone has fellowship and sits at Jesus' table? Communion, communion, okay? So in the same way that someone is right with God and we show it through baptism, someone is right with God, we show it through communion, the church backs up the decisions of heaven, what then does it mean if somebody has to be removed from a church? It means we're saying something deeper about their spiritual reality. It means we're saying you and God are not cool, you and God are not friends, y'all are not doing okay. We are simply binding or loosing on earth what God has already bound or loosed in heaven. To get removed from a church, it's a really big deal. It's why you can't just go join another church. I mean you can physically, but it doesn't deal with the problem. It's kinda like somebody who has cancer so they go find a doctor that will tell them they don't have cancer. That doesn't deal with the cancer. And so what he's saying is when we're gathered and this person has to be removed, I as an apostle, in a sense, am there with you and you're doing this on the authority of Jesus. It's a big deal, all right? Now, look at verse five. Verse five. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. We'll talk about this in just a second. What is the purpose, according to verse five, of church discipline? Is it to be mean? Is it to be hypocritically judgmental? Is it to do any of that? Look at the end of verse five. This is huge. You have to see this. So his soul might be saved on the day of the Lord. So that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. The purpose of discipline is not just to be mean or punitive. The purpose of discipline is restorative. It's, you have to see the love of God in this. The whole reason God is doing this is because he cares for that person. He cares for the purity of his church. He cares for his own glory. But he also cares for that person being removed. He's doing this to wake them up, to wake them up. And by the way, do you do discipline on believers or non-believers? Here's the answer, you don't have to know. If someone proclaims to be a Christian and they're walking in sin, you do church discipline. I've heard people say you should only do discipline if you're 100% sure that person's lost. Paul seems to think he's a believer and by handing him over to Satan, he'll actually repent and be saved. You don't have to know that person's spiritual state, in fact, part of how they respond to discipline will show you what they are. But if they're claiming to be a Christian and they're walking in unrepentant sin and you've gone to them and you've gone to them and you've gone to them and they won't listen, eventually they are removed. And listen, the reason is loving. The reason is to save them from hell. That's the point. tell you a little story. You know how my dad learned how to throw a football? So when you throw a football to a receiver you can't just throw it where they are because they're running. So the football will go behind them. Does that make sense? I I don't know where we're all at when it comes to physics. Does that make sense? So if someone's running and I throw the football and I throw it right where they are, it's gonna go behind them, okay? So what I have to do is I've gotta throw it in front of them. It's called leading the receiver. It's the same way if you're like shooting skeet. You've gotta shoot in front of that skeet and that way the skeet runs into it. Does that make sense? So as a little kid, he couldn't get that concept, okay? Couldn't get the concept of leading the receiver. So here's how he learned to throw a football. His sister was riding around on her bicycle and his older brother came up and said, here, throw this rock at your sister. And so he took it and went, and he threw the rock at her and it went behind her. And he said, no, 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 you don't get it. You've gotta throw it in front of her so she rides into the rock, all right? So she rides into the rock. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off and he's like, I've got it. And he throws it and she's like, ching, ching, ching ching, she gets hit by that rock, all right? And they're celebrating. They're like, yeah, we did it. I know how to throw a football. What do you think happened to my dad when his mom found out? She put the fear of God in him. And his tendency to throw rocks at his sister while she's on her bicycle drastically went down. Okay? Verse Tommy Nelson says, I knew my mother loved me because she beat no other boy on our block. All right? (laughs) Church discipline is loving. It's loving. Look at verse 5 again. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What does that mean to hand someone over to Satan? Well, here's a way to think about it. The devil hates you, by the way. If you don't know that, he hates you. He hates you because God loves you. The devil hates what God loves. You're made in the image of God. He hates God. He hates you, all right? His job is to condemn you. He comes to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to, you know, bring disunity. He wants to bring condemnation. He Hates you, all right? He hates you. Now, he's stronger than you, all right? He's stronger than you. So that's kind of scary. Jesus, at one point, talking to Peter, says, Peter, the devil has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. The devil wants to shred you to pieces. But within the church, there's a level of spiritual protection. Within the church, there's like spiritual armor. Why? Because there's means of grace within the church. There's the preaching of the word where you can hear God's word. There's prayer, There's communion where you are encountering Jesus in a special way as you remember his broken body and shed blood. There are things like community groups where you can confess your sins and have fellowship. So to hand someone over to Satan means you remove those means of grace and you've put them out on Satan's territory. It means that when they're not part of the church, they're out on Satan's turf, which is scary. If they really are Christians, it will drive them nuts being away from the teaching of the word and prayer and fellowship and communion and all these good things in the church. To hand them over to Satan is to say, put them out in Satan's turf. Put them out in Satan's turf. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. For the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? A lot of times, when the Apostle Paul uses the word flesh, sometimes the word flesh just means body, so the word became flesh. But when the Apostle Paul uses it a lot of times, the word flesh, sarks, a lot of times means that sinful part of you. That sinful part of you. Spirit versus flesh doesn't just mean like non-material versus material part of you. It means the redeemed way you should be walking versus the old man. And so I think what Paul is saying here is this. This person's in sin, remove them, put them out in Satan's turf so that they might repent for the destruction of their sin. Now, let me say something really weird and scary that sounds like it's from the Middle Ages, but it's actually good and biblical. Can sometimes God kill somebody in sin and take them home so that they don't continue down a path of unrighteousness? Yes, In 1 Corinthians, where they're abusing communion, Paul says that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died. In the book of Acts, there's Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit so God kills them. This is a thing God can do. There's actually a uh, professor up at a uh, seminary in Canada, and he tells a story, true story, where he took a pastorate up there, and uh, from the outside, the, the church looked really clean and healthy, and when he got inside the church, he learned that there was all kinds of unrepentant sin, false doctrine, people sleeping around, even in leadership and all these kind of things. And he didn't know what to do. So he just started praying that God would purify his church. And all of a sudden, he started doing funerals. He did 34 funerals in three months at that church. A lot of whom were the people that were in senior leadership there. There is a fear in this, that if you don't have the protection of the church and Christians don't affirm you as a Christian and you're out in Satan's turf, that is scary. If you're really a Christian, that will drive you nuts and you will run back into the arms of Mother Church. You run back into the arms of Mother's Church. Now, how do you do discipline practically? Okay, does does everybody agree, according to this text and the text we looked at last week, that the Bible commands us to do church discipline? Okay, amen, good. If you don't, come chat with us. Come find a staff member, find an elder. We'd love to chat with you about this if if you're still uh, uncomfortable with this. The Bible clearly teaches it. What does it look like practically? What would it look like here at Parkway. We've had to do this several times in the past, all right? We've had to remove people from fellowship. What does that look like? Here's what it would look like, okay? Step one, let's, I'm gonna build a scenario for us. So let's say there's a guy who's cheating on his wife, okay? I'm just gonna call him Ted. If your name is Ted, this is not directed to you, all right? I just had to pick a random name, all right? So there's Ted, he's in the church, and let's say he's cheating on his wife. When somebody finds out about that, before they do anything else, they go talk to him. Right? According to Matthew 18, we go to that person one-on-one. So what you would do if you knew Ted is you would sit down and you would say, hey, man, I know this is awkward. I have struggles in my own life. I'm not here to be mean. I'm not here to throw stones. But it looks like I see some sin in your life. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what's going on. Now, if Ted repents in that moment, the process is over. 98% probably of church discipline doesn't really get past step one, to be honest with you. Most church discipline, as far as this whole process that Jeff talked about last week, and if you didn't listen to that, please go online and listen to it, most of that process will stop at step one. Someone's in sin, they get rebuked, they repent. But if this man doesn't repent, or he starts making excuses, yeah, I'm cheating on my wife, but we've had a bad marriage, we really should have never gotten married, and it's the tendency of a sinful human heart to justify sin. If he starts doing that, you then take some more people with you, and you have a little intervention. And you sit down again, and you say, Ted, I know this is awkward. We don't want to be here. This is weird. This is difficult. But we love you enough to say we think that you're in unrepentant sin, and that's dangerous for your soul. Would you please consider what we're saying? Please consider what we're saying. And if Ted again says, nope, forget it. I'm not leaving my mistress. I'm going to stay with what I'm doing. The next step of that, it would actually be to tell it to the elders. The elder's job would then be to collect information, See if they can meet with both people in the couple, see if they can find everything that's going on, because their job would then be to present it to the congregation. So if they don't listen to one, you bring another. If they don't listen to that, you tell it to the church. So what we would do then is at a members' meeting, because this is family business, at a members' meeting, what we would do is we would present what's going on. We would say, This is Ted. He's been a member of our church for five years. Here's what's going on. He's cheating on his wife. This guy met with him, he didn't repent these people met with him, he didn't repent, and we would then call the congregation to reach out to him. Now, if you don't know him, don't reach out to him. That would be really weird. But if you have a relationship with Ted, you've known him, what you would then do is you would reach out to him. And we'd give you a time period. Hey, if you know him, call him to repentance. If he doesn't repent in, I don't know, two weeks, a month, whatever the time period would be, then he's removed from the church. So we'd then give the congregation a chance to reach out to him. If he still didn't repent, he would be removed from fellowship. He couldn't come to services, couldn't take communion, couldn't be in a community group. He'd have to feel the full sting of his sin. That would be the process, okay? Now, when can Ted come back? As soon as he repents. What's ironic about church discipline is there's a sense in which you really kick yourself out of a church because you can come back at any time if you'll simply repent. We'd remove him and say, we love you, we beg you to reconsider. Anytime you wanna repent, you can come back. We will welcome you back with open arms, and I've seen this done. I've seen people where we've had to do discipline on them and then they come back a year later and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And we throw a party and we slaughter the fattened calf because the prodigal has returned and we weep and we pray and it is awesome because that person has been loved enough to discipline them so that they would come back and repent which they wouldn't have done had we not disciplined them. It's loving, it's good. By the way, it's the same thing that you do If you have, you can't do this like a three-year-old, but if you have like a 19-year-old son that lives at home and is walking in sin, okay? Same process as church discipline. So let's say you've got, I'm just picking an age, 19-year-old son, he's living in your home and he's sleeping around and he's doing drugs. What you do is you sit down with him and you say, son, we love you. We want you to be a part of this household. But if you're gonna be a part of this household, you gotta follow the rules. You can't be sleeping around, you can't be doing drugs. That's option A. Option B is you can leave and you can pursue your sin as much as you want. You can pursue your sin as much as you want but you don't have the blessings of the house. You have to pick. Do you want the blessings of the house and no sin or do you want your sin and no blessings of the house? But I want option C. I wanna stay at the house and be enabled so I can keep walking in my sin. I know you want that option. I can't give you that option because that's not loving. That's called enablement. So here are your two options. And if your son says, okay, I'll stay and I won't do those things, great. Great, you haven't enabled him. If he says, forget you, that's so mean, that's so judgmental, and he leaves, he leaves, or you kick him out and he chases his sin. But Zach, what if he gets kicked out and he goes further into sin? He's already in sin and you're enabling him by having him in your home. But Zach, what if he goes to prison? I'm not trying to keep him out of prison, I'm trying to keep him out of hell. Some people have to have life hit them hard enough to where they realize I'm tired of eating the pods given to the pigs and I'm gonna return to my father's house. Now, if he comes back six months later and says, I don't have any money, I got kicked out of my apartment, can I please stay with you? You say, are you willing to repent? Yes. If so, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. You kick yourself out. What we do is we make people, whether they're kids, people at the church, you can do this with a lot of relationships. You make them choose between Jesus and the blessings that come along with him or their sin, but they cannot have both. They cannot have both. Okay, now, I want to end by mentioning a few things to you. I want to end by mentioning a few things to you. Number one, nobody's mad here, all right? The, The elders and staff love you. I've actually, I'm not an elder. I've gotten to sit in some elders' meetings, and guys, if you knew how much they love you, if you knew how much they weep for you and pray for you and think through things of what's best for you, oh, man, it would be so encouraging. Okay, so we're doing this proactively, it's hard to do discipline if, if in the future we need to do this process if the congregation hasn't been taught on it. That's why we're teaching on it, okay? Number two, we have to reorient our minds to know that rebuke is good and loving. Rebuke is good and loving. Here's actually what I'll do sometimes jokingly to people. I'll go to them and I'll say, hey, Proverbs says that a wise person accepts rebuke and a fool spurns it. I'm about to rebuke you. What would you like to do? And I just kind of set them up for a failure right there, all right? And so, but we've got to reorient our minds to know that rebuke is loving. Rebuke is good. Discipline is good. And then lastly, I wanna end with this. Nothing I have just said has anything to do with lost people. Has anything to do with lost people, okay? I wanna show you a passage. We're gonna throw it up on the screen. This is the end of the chapter that we're not able to get to today, but I I wanna mention it briefly. Verses nine through 11 here of 1 Corinthians 5. It says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now look at verse 10. Underline it, put a star by it, all right? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here's what God's word just said. Stay away from people in sin, but not lost people. Stay away from those in the church that claim to be Christians that are in unrepentant sin. I think, by and large, the evangelical church has done the opposite of this. I think we tolerate sin in our midst for those that claim to be Christians, but when it comes to lost people, we stiff-arm them. We stay away from them. So let me rephrase this a different way. I want you to have a ton of lost friends. I want you to have a ton of lost friends. If all your friends are Christians, I want you to not do that, and instead I want you to go find some lost friends. I want you to be around the swindlers, the sexually immoral, the idolaters of the world, because you know why? Jesus loves them, and they need to meet Jesus. I want you to hang out with them all the time. Who I want you to remove fellowship from is someone that claims to be a Christian and is in hard-hearted, unrepentant, I love sin more than I love Jesus kind of sin. That's what I want. Let me say it another way we have to be careful in the church that we don't create an us versus them mentality. You see that a lot in churches. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are demons. They're powers and principalities. So whatever group you don't like, that's the group I want you to hang out with. You know why? So they might meet Jesus. But Zach, what if their sin corrupts me? What if you corrupt them with the gospel? That would be great. So whatever groups you don't like, whether it's liberals or conservatives, whether it's Muslims, people in the LGBT community, transgender people, whatever it is, those are the people I don't want you having an us versus them mentality. Those are the people I want you hanging out with and showing them the love of Christ that they might bow the knee and love Jesus too. This text, everything I said is not about lost people. When I say purifying the church or kicking someone out in sin, I never mean someone who's not a Christian and would profess that. I'm meaning of those who claim to be Christians. That's what we do. There's not two kinds of people in the world, lost people and saved people. There's actually three kinds. There's lost people, saved people, and so-called brothers. Goats, sheep, and wolves in sheep's clothing. And we treat those different groups of people differently. We treat them differently. Let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I pray that uh, you would just help us right now. This is a difficult text. Typically, we don't just talk about this. Typically, we talk about Jesus and the fact that you sent your son to provide forgiveness for us because we're broken and we're hurting and we need a savior. And so I pray right now that you would protect us from the lies of the enemy, that if there's anyone in here leaving this church thinking, man, this church is mean and this is Spanish Inquisition-y and these kind of things, that you would lovingly show them that this is good and it's what your word commands. I pray for anybody that's concerned, that thinks maybe we're upset or mad, that they wouldn't think this, that they would know this is just teaching. I pray for anybody in here right now that feels far from you and struggling, that they wouldn't feel like we're just going to hit them because they struggle with sin. We're talking about people that uh, deny you for sin. We're talking about people that love their sin more than you. And so I pray that you would just protect us from confusion. I pray that you would bless this time as we even now take communion and remember the, the win that Christ had because we had lost, uh, we, we, had, we lose, we, we've lost, that you would help us in this. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.